Now then, with a view to the blessing of God, let's uh, turn to Second Peter again and uh, chapter 3. And reading again in verse 4, where we read of the scoffers who ask this question, where is the promise of his coming? And the reason for that question, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So where is the promise of his coming? Or really, as the question means, where is the coming itself? Or where is the promised coming? Of course, they know where the promise is. They, they know the promise is in the Bible. But where's the event? And the fact that the event hasn't appeared seems to them to be an argument for believing that it actually never will take place at all. Now the theme of the last chapter here is the second coming of Christ and of course the the end of all things which that event ushers in. So the second coming itself. Now the Bible of course clearly teaches that our Lord will return. The Bible taught that he would come the first time and he came. It also teaches that he will come a second time, and he will come. And the whole church everywhere and in all ages has believed that. And we await the return of our Lord. Just as he left bodily and visibly, raised up into heaven, so he will descend from heaven bodily and visibly. Although, as the scriptures tell us, when he returns, this time it will not be uh, in order to be a sin-bearer in his humiliation, but it will be in his glory with all the holy angels with him. Now, although the whole church has believed that and taught that and waited uh, for the coming of the Lord, um, it's important to notice that some in the early church expected that return of the Lord very, very soon. You'll find it in the Apostles' own writing. For example, Paul has to write to the church in Thessalonica in the letter to the Thessalonians, where he tells them to get on with their lives in a way in which they were obviously not doing. And the reason they weren't planning for the future or taking the future much into consideration was because they thought that the Lord would return any time, that he would return imminently. Now, Paul corrects that. Far from that being the actual case, uh, Paul corrects it. And at various places in the New Testament we're told of certain things that have to happen before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And it's important to remember these things. He tells the Thessalonians, for example, that the Lord will not return until the Antichrist has arisen and fallen. He also uh, tells us that the the gospel will spread throughout the nations in a way that will bring them all 
to acknowledge Christ officially as Lord and Savior. And he also tells us that a time will come when the Jewish people will be engrafted again back into the olive tree and become part of his own people. So these things have to happen before the Lord returns. And in fact, Christ himself told the church that it would be a long time before he returned. And if you read some of the parables very carefully, you'll notice that an important truth in these parables is that there is a perceived delay in the coming of the Lord. Now, I'll come to this idea of a delay in a minute, but there's at least a perceived delay in the coming of the Lord. So much so uh, that many people uh, will lose hope in it. You have, of course, the wise and the foolish virgins, or the parable of the talents, or the, the man who began to beat his fellow servants in the house because he saw that the master was delaying his coming. So all these parables are designed to tell us that it will be a long time, an unexpectedly long time, before the Lord returns. And as I said, the sense of hope and the sense of expectation of that return is likely to diminish. And especially when iniquity abounds, the love of many will become cold because many of the Lord's people themselves are failing to look upward and to remember the return of the Lord. And Peter, of course, is writing this second letter when he's nearing his own death. And he's telling them uh, in the letter that he's about to put off his tabernacle. He speaks of his body as a temporary tent. Of course, he's looking forward, like Paul, to having a new body in glory, but he's about to put off the tabernacle. He says, as the Lord showed me. Christ had told Peter how he would die for himself. And before he dies, he reminds the people of many things, but especially to have a right attitude to Christ's return. And first of all, they're to believe in that return with faith. And by that I mean that they believe it on the authority of the word of God. So they're to believe in the fact of Christ's return by faith. Then second, they're to look forward to it with hope and expectation. And third, they're to live in the light of that return uh, with godly conduct and with diligence. So they, they're to believe it by faith, they're to look forward to it with expectation and they're to live in the light of it with diligence. I suppose if you just make that love, you have faith, hope, and love. Now this morning I just want to confine ourselves to the importance of believing it, and believing it with faith. In other words, as I said, on the authority of the word of God, the God who cannot lie. Now it's important of course to believe it because not everyone does and as the last days advance those who disbelieve it will become more and more vocal and these people are marked out in two ways and you see these two ways clearly in verse 3 of the chapter that's 2nd Peter 3 and verse 3 we're to know this first 
No, that's not first of all, it just means as a priority. We will to take note of this, that scoffers will come in the last days and they will be marked out, first of all, by their lifestyle. They will be walking according to their own lusts. So far from following God and showing that in their life, the opposite is the case. Their lives will reveal that they are not really believers in God. In verse 11, you'll notice that those who believe in the second coming are distinguished in their lifestyle by holiness. Verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, that's the world and the cosmos itself, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. But these people, these scoffers, have a different lifestyle. They are walking according to their own lusts. Now, I read this passage recently to you, but Paul says the same thing to Timothy. In these last days, he says, perilous times will come. And these times of peril are always recognized by human behavior reaching ungodly limits. Men will be lovers of themselves. Now, I think I said before, when I read this before, that in many respects, all these characteristics are true of us anyway, as unbelievers. But in the last days, and in times of particular peril, when restraint is cast off, all these things become really prominent. They mark out a generation. So men are lovers of themselves, narcissistic, vain. They will be lovers of money. Covetousness will be obvious, evident. Boasters. Self-projection of image and power. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, crucify you for a word, slanderers, lacking self-control, despisers of what is good, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And if they have any semblance of godliness, they've only got a form of it which denies its real power. Now, I don't think I need to argue the case to you that we are living in such perilous times. You will have recognised a description of the West as we know it, and certainly the countries that we live in, by the terms I've just read from the Apostle. So these men in the last days are marked out by their lifestyle, but also by their attitude to the gospel, particularly because Peter calls them scoffers. In verse 3 of our text, scoffers will come in the last days. The word means in the Greek, well, just what it means in the English there, to ridicule something or to make a, a mockery of something. And the thing that they're mocking particularly is the idea here that the this figure or this man who was uh, crucified on the authority of Rome is somehow uh, going to return from heaven. 
and make his presence known in the whole world. Of course, that's an absurdity because to them he's not alive anyway. He's not at the right hand of God. He doesn't rule there, so he's not going to come in power and in glory. They find the whole thing ridiculous. Where is this promised coming? And they speak of it with contempt and with arrogance. And Peter's really referring to that in verse 9, in the well-known text where he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Or the Lord is not slow or tardy or negligent concerning his promise, as some count slackness or tardiness or slowness or negligent concerning his promise. So they've got a kind of arrogance and a contempt for it. And quite clearly the the spirit of mockery is there and we know that spirit very well. It says effectively, oh well, this saviour that you're waiting for, have you not been waiting a long time for the saviour? I mean, here we are 2,000 years after these events, 2,000. And if these poor people in Thessalonica thought that, oh, well, he was going to come any time, and everybody since has been saying, well, he may well come any time. Are you not starting to look a bit stupid 2,000 years later, believing that this character is going to return from heaven in power and in glory to judge the whole world, the world that judged himself and crucified him? Do you really believe he's going to return, that he's alive and going to return and to judge the earth? Now, Peter, of course, is addressing this apparent delay and the reasons for it. Now, by saying apparent delay, I mean, I'm using that carefully because there is no delay, of course. The only way you can know something is delayed is by knowing the appointed time. And you've also got to be able to measure that time properly. And only when you measure time properly and when you have a set appointed time, only then can you actually know if something is delayed or not. Now, the fact is that Christ gave no time in connection with his return. And that's just the facts. There are many people who try to uh, work out the time of his return on the basis of certain biblical calculations in the book of Revelation and notably in the book of Daniel. Now, there may be events, certainly, that you can prophesy from there, but not the time of Christ's return. Not only did he say that it would be a long time, he explicitly said, of that day and of that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, he he said those words in connection with a a threefold question that the disciples had asked. They had asked when the temple would be destroyed and what would the sign be of his coming and of the end of his age, of the age. Now, when I say threefold question, I think they thought that was one question. I think they thought everything was going to happen together. Temple destroyed, the coming of the Lord and the end of the age. But the Lord separates these out. They're not going to happen at the same time. The destruction of the temple uh, will happen in their own generation, in their own lifetime. Jerusalem itself will be destroyed in their own lifetime. And he gives the details and the signs of that happening. But then he says, but of that day, that is of my coming, and that hour, he says, 
No one knows. No signs of that. The angels don't know. Only my Father in heaven. So from that we understand that the Lord himself was not given to know that in his state of humiliation. We of course believe that he does know it in his state of exaltation. But Paul reminds them, sorry, Peter reminds them too that the measurement of time is different for everyone as well, at least in how we perceive it. And time has a lot to do with perception. You know yourself that if you're enjoying yourself for half an hour, you say, where did that go? If you're not enjoying yourself for five minutes, it feels like an eternity. Um, Of course, the perception of time in heaven will be completely different from the perception of time in hell. Completely different. That's not to to say that there is no time in heaven and hell. There is time in both. But the perception of both will be completely different. But as far as God's concerned, he's outside of time anyway. He, He doesn't experience time like we do at all. He's outside of it. And for him, Peter says, a thousand years is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. In other words, it just doesn't mean anything. Um, some people try and make a kind of formula out of that, and they, they try and apply it to the days of creation. It could be a thousand years because a day is like a thousand years, but it works both ways round. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day, which is a way of saying it doesn't mean anything doesn't mean anything to God. What you think of as a long time is just twinkling of an eye for him. He's outside of it. He doesn't measure it the same way. In other words, he's got his timetable of events. He's got his timetable, and there's no delay of any kind. We're taught in the New Testament that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we need to know. It's not the when, it's the fact of. He has appointed a day. And obviously that day was 2,000 years at least in the future from when these things were written. That's all we need to know. It's appointed, so there's no delay. But you'll notice that those who are ridiculing the idea of Christ returning to to judge the world, to bring things to a close. You'll notice that those who are ridiculing that have got another reason for doing so. It's not just because time passes, it's taken such a long time, but because there's such uniformity in the world. There's such evidence of uniformity on the earth and in the cosmos. Everything's the same, and as far as they're concerned, everything always has been the same from the beginning of creation. And although they use the word creation, it doesn't necessarily mean they believe it. It's just a, a way of speaking about the beginning. That's why you find cosmologists, for example, who do not accept the biblical teaching on creation, they'll still use the word creation just as a kind of expression for what's there. They may say, for example, well, the creation began with a big bang. So they use the word creation but they don't mean it in the same way. God's not in it. God's not behind it. God's not involved. But their whole idea is one of uniformity. Now, uniformity can certainly lull you into a false sense of security. 
that's the way we're made, you know. If things just happen day by day, we presume that they're going to happen day by day, and we presume they've always been that way. And, and we all know that. Here they're really saying, deep down, that the laws of physics and chemistry and biology have always been at work in space and on the Earth. And practically in a day-to-day -day way, that means that the sun rises and it sets every single day. The sun's always there, nothing's going to change that. The tide ebbs and flows, the seasons come and go, summer, autumn, winter, and then spring again. An obvious regularity. And they're saying, in effect, can you, can you not tell that we're in a closed system that just... Um, is, is, is um, working according to the regulations of these laws. It's just always been that way. And there's no intervention coming. No intervention. Of course, that's not a complete picture. Um, we would grant, of course, as Christians, and we grant it on the authority of the Bible, that there is a regularity and a regularity that God has placed there. He's put a regularity in the cosmos. He's put a regularity upon the earth. He's appointed that regularity. The sun and the moon and the stars. By his decree, he placed them where they are. He put that boundary upon the sea so that it would come in so far and come in no further. There is a fine tuning in the universe that is people will admit a marvel even if they don't accept it as creation but there is a fine tuning that makes it all just stay in place and it stay in place, stays in place because God has fixed it there the Lord has established it of old and therefore it remains but these people are forgetting and this is what Peter says they're forgetting that God has intervened in the past he said he would intervene and he did intervene. And when he says he's going to intervene in the future, he is going to intervene. And he gives three examples of intervention. And they're all very important. They're all very important because they all come in connection with the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is important in the whole passage. Because faith is our response to the Word of God. We need to remember that all the time. Faith is our response to the word of God. And in the past, God said he would do certain things, and he did them. And on two of these occasions, it was doubted by people, but nonetheless, it happened. Now, the first is not strictly an intervention, because it's the actual creation of the world itself. And rather than being an intervention, that's really initiation of things. It's the beginning of things. But the Bible tells us that the world didn't come about through natural processes, and neither did God use pre-existing things in order to shape the cosmos as we know it. In Hebrews 11.3, we read that by faith we understand. Now notice that juxtaposition there of reason and faith. He doesn't say by faith we believe simply, but by faith we understand this, that the worlds were framed, an interesting word, everything put into its place 
by the word of God. So we understand that. So, he says, that the things which are seen, all the visible things, were not made of things which are visible. Visible things were not made out of visible things. Now, that's what the materialist will say. The, the people who don't believe in God say that visible things were made out of visible things. They believe in the eternity of matter. I, I reference that in the tract uh, that I wrote there. They believe that the whole universe was originally uh, a pinhead of dense matter, incredibly dense matter, that exploded to create the universe as we know it, which is still expanding until it reaches a point where it begins to fall back in itself and, according to their own teaching, will eventually become a pinhead again, a dense pinhead, and will again explode and will again come together and again explode and again come together. Now, for that to be so, the pinhead always had to be there. There had to be a pinhead to start of incredibly dense matter. So that they say the visible things were made out of things that are visible. And as I alluded to in the tract, you can believe that if you like, but to my mind it requires a lot of faith to believe that. It requires far more faith than I've got to believe that everything just happened like that. I, I find it, with all due respect, far easier to believe what the Lord has told me in connection with creation than what people tell me in connection with creation. I find that position quite absurd, and I find that it doesn't answer any of our greatest questions, including why we ask questions at all in the first place. The ability to ask extraordinary questions is quite amazing if we all just came from a dense pinhead of matter. It really is. But in any case, by faith, we understand that things seen were not made of visible things. You'll notice the word of God is attacking materialism here uh, 2,000 years ago. This whole idea that, that, that has gripped people's minds is not new. People think that this is a modern way of thinking. There's nothing modern about it. It's an extremely old point of view that there is no God and that everything just came from matter. It's a very old point of view, and it's being addressed here by the word of God. You know, you know there's this idea that we are the enlightened generation, that, that this generation in the 21st century is, is the generation that really knows and really understands is asking the hard questions that people ever asked before. What a load of nonsense that is. We're no wiser, no smarter, no cleverer than the people who came before us. That's, that's just the fact of the matter. And the Bible addresses these things. And Peter tells us here that the earth was formed by God originally out of the water and by means of water. That it was that swirling chaos above the molten mass of the earth that pushed the earth underneath into shape and eventually at God's command it's described poetically and graphically in Psalm 104 at his rebuke the earth receded into its subterranean channels where it largely exists today and the earth appears with the bounds that God commanded um, water on the earth is an amazing thing 
People say, you know, that water covers 71% of the Earth's surface. Well, that's true. As far as I know, that's true. But what's also true is that in the subterranean channels underneath the crust, you have three times as much water as there is in the oceans, which is an astonishing amount of water. And it helps you see why at the beginning the waters covered the earth until the Lord brought them back in and the dry land appeared. Now that was done by the word of God, solely by the word of God. No other agency but that. That is the energy uh, that brought the cosmos into being. Now, the energy that's uh, placed into the cosmos is an astonishing thing. Uh, The Greeks thought that the atoms um, were the smallest things that constituted the fabric of the universe. And lo and behold, you split an atom and you discover the power. The power. Uh, the power inside there, and, and think of the energy that is in the cosmos. You can't. I mean, you cannot conceive of it. That energy is a product of God himself. He simply spoke it into being, and it was done. What a powerful God uh, we have. The second instance of divine intervention is, strictly speaking, an intervention rather than an initiation. Because amazingly, the world that God created, uh, and I use this word um, in an advised way, is a world that he then proceeded to decreate. By that I mean that he put it all back under water again. What happened with the flood is is an astonishing thing. People think it just rained for 40 days and 40 nights and there was a flood. There's a lot more to the flood than that. Uh, The water in the flood came from the subterranean channels. Yes, it it did come down from heaven for 40 days and 40 (coughs) nights, but that's only a fraction of the water. The vast bulk of the water came when Genesis tells us that the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the crust of the earth rips and starts to pull apart and everything that's underneath just comes out. And the whole world is deluged to the point where the earth becomes a swirling mass covered in water again and God reshapes and recreates. That's a stunning event. That's God saying, I'm finished with that. And here it is starting again. The reasons for that, of course, were to do with sin, with the evil that abounded. And when evil burst its banks like that, God, we're told in a very vivid anthropomorphic remark, Um, regretted that he had made man on the face of the earth because the imagination of man's heart was the reasoning that's what the word means as it's used in the AV the reasoning of man's heart was corrupt exceedingly so to the point where only one family one family maintained the witness of God upon the earth on the very day when the Lord ripped open the fountains of the deep and the rain began to fall from heaven. Now God had said that he would do so and of course the people did not believe it. He said that he would do so. He communicated that to Noah. Noah of course communicated it to the world and as he was building the ark there was an invitation with it to come into the ark but no one did. 
There's a, there's a rebuke to human pride and intelligence in the fact that the animal kingdom came inside the ark for salvation, but mankind did not. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm well aware, we all know that it was God who took the, these primitive animal uh, representatives into the ark. He took them in there and he preserved them. But there is nonetheless a kind of preaching and a rebuke in the fact that the animals came in to the ark, but nobody who heard the message from Noah, who's called here a preacher of righteousness, we don't find him in Genesis 6 uh, really preaching as such, but Peter tells us that he was that. He was a preacher of God's righteousness, how to be righteous before God. And I've no doubt that he used the ark that he was building as an illustration of how God would save and protect, but they didn't listen. They didn't believe because they believed that the world was established with a fixed and regular series of cycles that nothing was ever going to break. The more things change, the more they remain the same. And the earth again became covered in water. It's not long since... um, The whole world of geologists used to recognize a global flood, but very few do now. But I'll come back to that in a second. The third example of God's intervention is not in the immediate context here in chapter 3, but we read it in chapter 2, and it's to do with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very often coupled with the flood in the Bible. In fact, the little passage that we read from the Gospels, where Christ was speaking, he couples the flood, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as the flood tells us something about what God is going to do in the future, so does the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah tell us something about what God is going to do in the future, not by water, but with fire. God spoke of its destruction. And that message was given to Lot from the angels, Lot became a preacher of righteousness to his generation and were told that when he told them that the cities were going to be destroyed, were told that they mocked him. That's the word used, they mocked him. Even his sons-in-law, they mocked him when he told them earnestly that these cities in which they lived were going to be destroyed. Now, you know why these cities were destroyed, uh, because they had an abundance of bread, they lived idle lives, and they had plunged into sexual decadence. And they had created a a mini-community, these five cities of the plain, which were marked out by stark disobedience to God. And God said, enough. And when Lot said that God was going to intervene, the people didn't accept it. They thought he was mad. The word of God created, the word of God decreated, and the word of God judged. He said it would, and it happened. But Peter says that these people are forgetting these events. Look again at verses 4 and 5. These people are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Then he says, for this they willfully forget. 
A, the creation that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. B, by which water and word of God the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They forget these things. But you'll notice it doesn't say simply that they forget these things, but that they willfully forget these things. Now, I'm sure you know the difference between forgetting something and willfully forgetting something. Forgetting something is sadly what happens to some of us an awful lot. Willfully forgetting something is when you don't want to know and you don't want to remember and you simply blot it out and you repress it. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And in fact, that's pretty much akin to holding it in contempt. Because if there's something you don't want to know and it's bad news, sometimes by laughing at it you can put it away from yourself. And uh, people find it easier to cope with the idea of God and judgment if they just mock the thing and laugh at it. See, once you mock a thing and laugh at it, you bring it under your control. That's what you're trying to do anyway. You're bringing it under your control. You are the authority over it. That's how they respond to these things. Now, Paul calls it suppressing the truth. In other words, you know it. It's written for you, but you don't want to believe it. And that's the key. You don't want to believe it. So you dismiss it out of your mind. You deny the creation. You deny a creator. You deny the flood. I, I think I'm sure I referenced this in the tract as well. It's a remarkable thing. This obsession with finding life in the universe and finding traces of water, finding amino acids and all these things. There's a, I'm sure you're aware there's, a, there's an obsession with that. And there's a religious motivation behind that. Or if you like, an irreligious motivation behind that. It's not a scientific quest. Um, People think that scientists are the great neutrals in the world, as though they have no axe to grind. Oh, believe me, they have axes to grind. Everybody has axes to grind. And I'm sure I told you before of a program I heard years ago, this is going back years now, but um, where, a, the, where a prominent scientist was talking about some of these things. And he was asked on the radio, is there room for a creator in this? And his answer was, We've got the creator hanging on in there by his fingertips. Now, you make of that what you will, but I'll tell you what it said to me very clearly, was that that man was no neutral. That man absolutely had a motivation. And given a choice between what he was going to believe, I've no doubt in my mind what he was going to believe. Do you? That's why people who are desperate to find water on Mars actually believe that Mars was covered in water, the whole planet. Because from a distance they see evidences that it may be water-shaped. Although no water has been seen or observed in it. You look at planet Earth uh, from the point of view where you're looking down on the Pacific Ocean. And you'll find just a couple of bits of land. The rest is just a big ball of blue. 
because, as I said, 71% of it is covered in water, and three times that is underneath in subterranean channels. And everything on the face of the earth shows signs of water sedimentation and being shaped by water. And you ask, do you think the earth may have been shaped by water? No. We don't believe it was flooded. But you believe Mars was? Oh, yes. Now, is that what you want to believe? Or what you believe? This is where the will's coming in, you see. This they willfully forget. They willfully forget that there was a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. They willfully forget that God spoke about bringing everything into being by the word of his power. They don't want to know. And it's obvious why. We all know why. We all know. You know why in your own heart. You find it convenient to believe something that allows you to live the way you want to live. You breathe a sigh of relief when anything comes to the fore that you may think discredits the word of God because it gives you license to walk according to the lusts of your own heart. You see, there is a connection here between the way that they scoff the word of God on the one hand and live according to the lusts of their own hearts on the other. These things are not accidentally both there at the same time. They, they, they come together. We believe what we want to believe to further the kind of life that we want to live. The consequences of believing that the earth was flooded are simply too great. Why? Because it gives credence to Genesis chapter 6. Even if there are fossils found on the highest mountains of the earth, of sea creatures, no, it was never flooded. It was never flooded. Because if it's flooded, the Bible might be true. If the Bible's true, I'm in trouble. Nobody wants to believe that. And in terms of this kind of continuity, you see, I spoke earlier about continuity lulling us into a false sense of security. Because you think today's like yesterday, so tomorrow is going to be like today. Christ said, that's the very thing you've got to be aware of in connection with my return, he says. Don't be comfortable about the idea of my return. Always be alive to it, always be alert to it. Always be awake and not asleep. In Noah's day, he said, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that the fountains of the great deep were opened up. Day by day, just eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Of course, people who get married like that and are given in marriage are, are planning for a future. So they were living day-to-day lives ordinarily and they were making ordinary plans for the future until the day. The day, not the week or the year. It's not as though there were events that were just uh, telling you that the thing was going to happen. Until the very day life went on as normal. And the same was true in Sodom. Jesus tells us himself that on the day Sodom was destroyed, they were still eating and drinking. They were buying and selling. They were planting and building. Again, living day to day and planning for the future. Until the day that Lot went out of Sodom. And then it rained fire and sulfur from heaven. In fact, there's an interesting uh, touch in the Bible in Genesis 19 when it describes the destruction of Sodom. 
it tells us that the sun had risen on the earth on the day that Lot went out and arrived in Zoar, the city that God would spare. The sun had risen. It's almost a way of saying, oh, well, it's just another day in Sodom. But it wasn't just another day in Sodom. And one day in your own life, it's not going to be just another day. And in the history of the world, it's not going to be just another day. It will begin with the rising of the sun, but it won't end with the setting of the sun. I suppose the sun rising is the ultimate in continuity and predictability. But it's the day that God said, enough for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if God's promised to intervene, and if he's done so in the past, just very briefly, why does he take so long? Well, it's nothing to do with delay, but it's everything to do with grace. We're told here in verse 9 that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider him to be slow, but he is long-suffering. Towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long suffering. Long suffering means taking long to be angry. Macrothumia. Macrothumia means sh- short tempered. Short tempered is somebody who, who responds really quickly with anger. Long tempered has the same word in it, thumia, anger, but takes long to be angry. We're told here that God is long tempered not short-tempered. He, he lets things go, not in the sense of not reckoning them, taking account for them or judging them, but he leaves them be until he deals with it in his wrath. The Bible tells us that he's slow to wrath. Slow to wrath. Unto wrath and anger slow. The fact is that the world, as, as we see it just now, is being preserved and reserved on the one hand it's being preserved marvelously there are plenty forces underneath the crust that would destroy this earth in the twinkling of an eye many forces in the universe that could obliterate this earth in the twinkling of an eye but God preserves it the one who created it uh, so that it's placed by his fixed decree is sustaining it The Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, is upholding it by the very word of his power. Isn't that astonishing? The Lord Jesus Christ is upholding all things by the word of his power. It's preserved. It's also reserved, which is slightly different. Reserved means that it's actually coming towards its appointed end. And that is judgment by the Lord Jesus Christ. He will judge it. And in this period of preservation and reservation, well, what marks out this period is the grace of God, symbolized by the rainbow. It's always struck me as astonishing that, pe- that the people who most want to defy God's norms for living are the people who take a rainbow and use it to promote their own cause. Whereas the actual rainbow is giving the reason why God's not dealing with that. The actual rainbow is saying, I'm seeing you. I know that you are provoking me. But as long as I say so, I am preserving this world. 
and I'm giving a message of multicolored grace because I am not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. If you go back to 1 Peter here and in chapter 3 just for a second. And in verse um, 18. Uh, we're told how Christ went, um, how Christ, Christ preached by his Holy Spirit before the flood. Christ also suffered once for sins. That's 1 Peter 3, 18, page 1858. He suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. By whom? That's by the Holy Spirit. He went and preached to the spirits who were in prison. Now that's describing the ancient world as a prison. The people in it were reserved to judgment, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited. Now, isn't that interesting? He doesn't say that God waited for 120 years. He says that the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved from the water. The divine long-suffering waited for 120 years. And the divine long-suffering didn't just wait, but the divine long-suffering preached, remember through Noah, the preacher of righteousness, until God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. I'll give 120 years, and then the deluge will come. And at that point, um, the world is not being so much preserved as we served. Or at least the moment that God closes the ark. People are still alive, but they are not preserved under grace. They are reserved for judgment. I mean, that judgment's coming now, and nothing can change that. Preservation has become reservation. Same was true with Sodom and Gomorrah. As long as Lot told them what was going to happen, there was preservation, there was grace. But the moment Lot left the city, it, that preservation became reservation. Reservation for destruction. And the fire and the sulfur that came from heaven destroyed them all. So the old world became a prison. Sodom became a prison. And this world will become your prison too if you choose to make your home in it. If you choose its values, its ambitions, and its lifestyles, you will change from being preserved by God with a hope and an opportunity to being simply reserved under judgment. Right now you're preserved. Don't become reserved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Believe that. So we believe it by faith. Now, either tonight or tomorrow, I'm not yet sure, uh, we'll pick this up and we'll consider how to look forward to this and how to live in the light of it. Let's close our service by singing in Psalm 90. And at verse 10, Psalm 90. At verse 10, who, uh, sorry, three score and ten years to sum up 
our days and years we see. Or if by reason of more strength in some fourscore they be, yet does the strength of such old men but grief and labour prove, for it is soon cut off, and we fly hence and soon remove. Who knows the power of thy wrath? According to thy fear, so is thy wrath. In other words, um, you can't fear him enough. That's what that's saying. Lord, teach thou us our end in mind to bear, and so to count our days. Now, we really need to do that. This is another year past. The Lord still hasn't returned. The only reason for that is because it's not the year that God appointed. But let's count our days that we, our hearts, may still apply to learn thy wisdom in the Scriptures, in Christ, and thy truth, that we might live thereby. We'll stand to sing these four stanzas. It's more than ten years to